Christmas. It's great to be able to say that, and uh, it's a wonderful time of year. Uh, the department store starts singing our songs, and uh, just there's a different spirit in the air of uh, people being ready for spiritual things, and so be sensitive to that with your friends, uh, with family members, and uh, some of those things. And also, just so you know, um, you'll see it in your worship program, but we've got a Christmas Eve service that will be strategically placed at the exact date of Christmas Eve, um, if you want to look that up. Um, but <laughs> it's on a Monday this year. We will have Sunday services here at the uh, movie theater like we normally do, and we'll have a special uh, Christmas Eve service. If you've ever been a part of one of those before, you know it's a special time for us as a church where we all come together for one service, and we've been blessed to be able to do that in the past. We're going to do that again this year. There's information in the worship program about just that. But I want to ask you today, if you wouldn't mind, helping me settle an argument that my wife and I have been having about when you can start celebrating Christmas. And there are some people that think you can celebrate before Thanksgiving. There are some people that think you have to wait till after Thanksgiving. So I just want to know so you can settle this debate for us. How many of you think it's okay to celebrate Christmas before Thanksgiving? All right, yeah. What's that? About something heckling? we got arguments amongst family members. No, we don't need to know who's win. No, no, no. You don't need to know what side I'm on or what Shanna's on. They want to know which side Shanna's on so they can pick, okay? All right. Now, how many of you think that you, can, you have to wait until after Thanksgiving to start celebrating? All right, she raised her hand over there. She got that thing right there. I think it's a tie. All right, <clears throat> so we've been debating at our house about which one. My wife grew up in a family where they didn't celebrate until after you at least ate the turkey on Thanksgiving Day. You could like, put the tree up after everybody left your house and all that kind of stuff, but you couldn't do it before that. And I've got friends that they, they celebrate, they started like November 1st. I've got Jason's one, Jed's one, I've got different friends um, that celebrate Christmas for a long time. And I thought, I love Christmas. Why well, can't we start decorating earlier? And I try to kind of pressure this year. My wife will tell you, I can be kind of a pusher with some of those types of things. And so I started coming up with reasons why it would be okay to celebrate before Thanksgiving was over with. I said to her, a spiritual reason is that Thanksgiving is a nationalistic holiday and Christmas is like a Christian holiday. And so I want to get to the Christian one. You're just all about being American. So you kind of go through that one. That doesn't work, okay? And whenever I try to like do the pastor card or the spiritual stuff, that doesn't go well at our house. And another one that I tried was this. You can't, she says, you can't celebrate one holiday till the other one's done, right? So you can't celebrate Christmas till Thanksgiving's done. I said, what if I'm really thankful for Christmas? We celebrate both at the same time. It's like super holiday, right? It's like mega holiday that happens at that moment. It didn't work. And one of the things I realized was that timing is key with Christmas. Today we're starting a series that we're calling a timely Christmas. And we're going to be the book of Galatians. We'll turn there in just a moment. But one of the things you'll realize if you think about the holiday season, that timing is very essential. Timing's key for when, if you're a guest at someone's house, when you show up, when you leave. <laughs> if you're having people at your house, you know that timing's key when your relatives come, when they go, when you say things, when you don't say things. If you're cooking food, when you pull that food out, if you leave it in too long, it gets dried out. If you pull it out too soon, it's raw, and so it's not good. Timing is key in so many elements of Christmas. And oftentimes when we think about timing, we break it down into two categories. There's on the one hand, there's good timing. On the other hand, there's bad timing. And if you think about that, that's how we do most of the things in life that when we think about timing, it's good timing and bad timing. I was trying to teach it to one of our daughters, our five-year-old daughter the other day at our house. My wife and I were having a conversation. And if you have little kids, you know that in order to have a conversation, you have to be very focused with, uh, with two adults. And uh, one of the things we're trying to teach our kids is not to interrupt adults talking. And so we were having this conversation in our room. We were very focused. And my five-year-old daughter, Ava, she's super cute. She comes running in with her cute little voice. And she says, Mom, Dad, can I watch a show? But we're in the midst of a conversation. Now, we can hear what she said, but we're trying to teach her don't talk while adults are talking. And just a good general rule in life is not to interrupt people while they're talking. And so we keep talking. 
And we stay focused on our conversation. And it was intense conversation. When the fight, emotions weren't raised. No one was mad, right, honey? <laughs> Don't want to have one after the service either. And, and so, but we were, we were focused in, the, in this conversation. And, and, and then Ava says again about 10 seconds later, Mom, can I watch a show? Which we ignore intentionally. We're being focused here. And we keep talking. Then she says it a third time, probably about a millisecond after that. She says, can I watch a show? And I stop. And I go over the lessons we've talked about. Ava, don't talk while adults are talking. Don't ever interrupt anyone that's talking. And I want to teach you about good timing and bad timing. Because she wants to watch a show, so she has a desired outcome that she wants. She wants us to say yes. It doesn't matter, you know, what show she's wanting to watch, all this stuff. She's got to have us turn it on. She's got to get permission from us. And so she's got to get a yes from us. And I said, there's a thing called good timing. And good timing would happen, say, if we were just happy and we were laughing and we weren't really focused on anything else. That would be good timing. Bad timing would be is if you came up to us when we were annoyed, we were frustrated. If one were to say, have a fight. Not that we're having one right now, but if there's a focused conversation, that would be bad timing. All those times would be bad timing because you probably won't get your desired result. And I don't know what she said right at that moment. It was probably, so can I watch the show? (laughs) But I was trying to give her the lesson. Good timing, bad timing. You think about the different categories. Isn't good timing, aren't we really saying that something happened that we wanted to happen? That we said the right thing at the right time and got the response we would like? Or we were at the right place at the right time? or some, We did something at just the right time, meaning we got our desired outcome. Bad timing means we didn't get our desired outcome. Isn't that what we really mean? I mean, we say good timing and bad timing, and usually we just kind of inherently know, just, yeah, that's good and that's bad. But what we really mean is our desired outcome. Today I want to talk about a third category of timing that happens regardless of our desired outcome, and it's always right. It's God's timing. It's a timing that if we grasp it and we would live in a reality of the truth that we're going to talk about today, it would transform our lives. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Galatians today. It's a letter towards the end of the New Testament, Galatians so you'll get past the Gospels, and then Acts, and Romans, and Corinthians, and there's the book of Galatians. We did a study on it earlier in the year where we went all the way through the book of Galatians. And what you naturally would expect me to say, because we're doing a Christmas series, is not to go to the book of Galatians. You'd probably think the Gospel of Luke, right? That's the birth story of Jesus. Or Matthew talks about Joseph's perspective. We'll get to that stuff. But the Christmas story is right in the middle of this book of Galatians as well. Galatians is a book that's really all about faith. And that's what we talked about when we were going through the study of this book, that we're saved by faith and then we also live by faith. And when I say live by faith, I mean you live your life according to the promises of God. That's what it is to live by faith. And to be saved by faith, what I'm saying is this, that we're rescued from our sins, that we're redeemed, that we're bought out of our sin and the bondage that we're in and set free to live with our inner relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be saved. And that happens by faith. That means you realize that God sent his son, the Christmas story. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and dies on the cross for our sins. And when we place our faith in that, we're reconciled to God. And that's how we start our relationship with Jesus. But many people fall into the error of thinking that we start by trusting Jesus, and then we live the Christian life by our works, that we do the right things, that we'll be religious, that we clean up our act, that we all go to stuff, that we learn certain facts. And then Paul tells the Galatians in this, that they fall in error to the same thing. And that you live by faith. He says in chapter 3, right before what we're about to read, who's bewitched you? Who's fooled you into thinking this? That you'd start your relationship by faith, then you'd live in the flesh, that you'd live by the law, that you'd live by your works. He uses different words. 
He says, you start by faith, you live by faith, and it's the same for everybody. Whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your religious background, doesn't matter your gender. It's the same for everyone. And then in our passage today, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, that's where we're going to be, he talks about timing and God's timing in this. Timing specifically in the Christmas story, and he starts with an analogy in the first two verses. And we'll look at that analogy, and then in the next three verses, he shows how that, he breaks that down and shows how it applies to our lives. Look at it with me, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What I'm saying is that, and so he starts to explain it with this analogy, as long as the heir, the person who's going to receive an inheritance, is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. And the reason why that's true is that while he has the rights to everything, practically speaking, he's still got a master. It says, although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Verse 3. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. He's making it applicable to us now. And he says in verse 4, But when the time had fully come, here's the Christmas story, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Here we see in this passage, and we looked at it a few months ago, we talked about slavery and bondage and walking in freedom. And today we're going to focus in on the timing here. Do you see the timing in verse 2 in the analogy? It's the Father that sets the time. And then in verse 4, we see that it's our Father that in the fullness of time, or when the time had fully come, at just the right time, another way you could say that is in His perfect timing, He sent His Son. See, His timing is perfect. And that's our point today. That's our main point today, is that God's timing is perfect. And God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is perfect in every situation. God's timing is perfect regardless of circumstances. God's timing is perfect regardless of outcomes. There's lots of ways we could say it. But God's timing is perfect. Do you believe that? It's easy to agree with. Let me, let me, I'm not going to give you a trick question here, but, but think about it a little bit more. When I say God's timing is perfect, I'm not saying this. It's really, really good. It's perfect. And so think about what that means. Every circumstance, all the time, like we see good timing. Good timing happens when you say the right thing at the right moment, right? Good timing happens if you walk in the door at just the right time. Good timing if you're a sports fan is like when your team's, you know, down, there's like point something seconds on the clock and some kid throws a shot from half court and it goes in the hoop. If he does that a hundred times, he will not make that shot a hundred times. See, God's timing is perfect every time in every circumstance. Jesus says it like this, in Matthew chapter 10, and verses 29 and 30, he talks about very minute things happening. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're not worth a lot, right? But he cares about them, is what he's saying. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the plan or will of your father. And look what he says. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. And so that means not even they will fall out apart from God's timing and plan. Now, I think sometimes that some have fallen out prematurely, especially in like this one area. But... According to his perfect time and his perfect plan, all these things happen. So let me ask you this again, and I'll pause, and you don't have to say anything verbally if you don't want to, but you can. Is God's timing perfect? Now, think about your life. When I say, is it perfect, and ask you whether you believe that, I don't just mean do you mentally agree with the statement. Does it impact every area of your life? If you believe that God's timing is perfect, let me tell you some things that will be true. You'll never be discontent. Because if his timing is perfect, then you have exactly what you're supposed to have, exactly when you're supposed to have it according to his plan. So, do you ever struggle with discontentment in relationships? Maybe you want to be married, not married yet. Maybe you are married. Your spouse isn't where you want them to be yet. Maybe your kids aren't doing what you want them to do. 
life circumstances, at work, with finances, with your health, any discontentment. So do you believe this? Not just do we factually know things to be true, not just do we acknowledge them, not would we just sign off on them, but do they change the way that we live? If we believe this, you know what else it impacts? The why questions that we all ask from time to time. Some of, them ask, some of us ask them out loud, some of us just silently, maybe in your prayer time, maybe just when you lay in bed at night. Did you ever ask, why did this happen? Hurricane Sandy. Just, that's the most recent, right? Or this thing from my past. Or why didn't you stop? Why did you allow? Why did you cause? Depends on what phrasing that you're most comfortable with, but why was this part of your plan? How could then? Why did? And Now, if his timing is perfect, it changes all of that. And what Paul's telling us in this passage of Scripture is that God, our Father, knows the perfect timing for us, and he starts with an analogy. Go back to verses 1 and 2. He says, what I'm saying is this. Let me explain this to you. I've been saying some stuff that's pretty tough to understand if you read chapter 3, but what I'm saying is this. As long as the heir, the one who's going to receive the inheritance, is a child, he's no different from a slave. Now, technically he is different, but practically speaking, he's saying, although he owns the estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees. They make decisions for him. They guide him. They direct him. They're like a master to him. And this is what happens. Until the time set by his father. Now, the Galatians would understand this. We've got some cultural barrier there. Most of us as Americans, there's not like a definite time when a son, a child, a boy moves into manhood or a daughter, a woman moves into womanhood. It kind of happens, but when? It's kind of fuzzy, all that stuff. Now, for the Jews, it was very clear. Bar mitzvah. As soon as bar mitzvah happened, boy becomes man. For the Greeks, very clear. About 18 years old, what would happen is a boy would go and take and burn all of his toys. A girl would go and take and burn all of her dolls. They'd wear a different toga, no longer had purple lining on it, and that was solid white. 18 years old is a set time. What Paul's referring to here is Roman law. Roman law was a little bit different than that for the Jews and the Greeks. Because for Romans, the father decided the time. It was different for every child. But he would decide exactly when you were ready to be able to make decisions, when you were ready to have your inheritance. And what he's speaking about here is a father of a wealthy estate because you'd be able to afford guardians and trustees, some of those things. And so try and imagine like this. Imagine you're the parent. And you've got a bunch of money, okay? Easy to imagine for some of you, hard to imagine for some of you. Imagine you've got like hundreds of millions of dollars. Fun little fantasy, right? So you had a relative that invented the spork, all right? Something that you never heard about. They died. You didn't know. And then all of a sudden you got all this money. Now imagine you have some little kids. You get to decide when they get that money. Say their portion is $100 million. Do you give a five-year-old $100 million? Think about all the candy and toys you could buy with $100 million. Or, or a 12-year-old, are they ready? Video games, right? For sure. Or computers or gadgets or things, phones. and They have multiple. They buy everybody a phone. And all that kind of, everybody they want to talk to. Do you buy them? Or 16? They buy a car? Some crazy cars, right? They could buy them palaces and all kinds of stuff. Do you decide as the parent to do it then? Or do you feel like you might know something they don't know? And that you wouldn't give it. Maybe you've heard enough headline stories of childhood celebrities or you've seen these people that are royalty and they get the money too soon and they blow it on riotous living. They blow it on women. They blow it on castles. They've wasted. They get involved in drugs. It ruins their lives. It's actually bad for a good gift. actually becomes bad for them. And you know that because of your life experiences. They don't know that. Now imagine you're the child. Can you remember when you were a kid? If you were five and someone said, I'm going to give you so much money, you can buy everything you want to buy, would you take it? Would you want it? What if when you were 10 or 12 or 16? Imagine when you were 16, if you went to your parents and you knew they had $100 million that they were going to give you, and you said, can I have it now? 
and they said yes, were you mature enough to go, I can't really handle that right now? <laughs> ah, you hang on to it, Mom. <laughs> you got it, Dad. Cover it. No. Now, here's what's key to understand in this analogy. We're the children. He says in the text here, when, when we were children, so also, verse 3, so also when we were children, we were in slavery. We didn't know best. That we have a father who actually knows what's best. That he sets the times for us. That everything would happen in our lives, including the very hairs on our heads. Every little detail. That he knows the times. That when you were children, he starts to break it down for the Galatians. It's like at, at my house uh, this past week, uh, some of our Christmas shopping done early. Now, one of the things that's kind of a, a secret about me is that I don't usually do shopping early because I love to give gifts. And so ever since the time even Shannon and I were dating, if I would buy her gifts, I'd go over to her house and I'd have them in the trunk of my car and I'd be like, can I just give you one? Like, I just want to give you one. I, I love to give gifts. And so I, I'm, I have a hard time keeping them. I was in the kitchen the other day with my seven-year-old daughter, and Shannon and I both had gone shopping for her and bought her Christmas presents for the year, so we were done. So my wife's a planner. She likes to get it done ahead of time. And I knew I couldn't give them to Ella, and she's seven, but I said, Ella, we bought all your Christmas gifts. And she gets excited, like she lights up. Can I have them? Nope, nope, can't do that. Get in trouble with my mom if I do that one. Can't, can't go that far. And so now it's like terrible parenting, right? Like they're in this house, just don't go look for them. This is kind of the, the way this happened. And then she says, can I just have one? And I said, no, you can't have one. And we have a tradition in our house, so we'll give one gift. It's always pajamas, but anyway, don't tell them. They're not in here. Uh, but we always give one gift on Christmas Eve. So we give that one gift on Christmas Eve. I said, you'll get one on Christmas Eve. Can't give you one today. Now, I would love to give her that gift. I, I want her to have the joy of playing with it. I want to play with it with her. I want to be able to experience that. I want to see her face when she's surprised by whatever it is, all that stuff. I, I love to do that. But I know what Christmas Day will be like if I give her all of her gifts now. So I might not be a perfect dad. I might make mistakes. I might do dumb stuff. My timing's not always right, all that kind of stuff. But I know in this situation, it'll be best not to give you the gifts. Can you imagine for a moment if my seven-year-old daughter thought she knew better than me and she walked up to me, smacked me in the face, and said, Dad, give me the gifts. You see, people do that. There's a story in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 15, you can read it on your own, where there's a son who does that to his father. It's called the prodigal son. Oftentimes we refer to it as that. And when we talk about the prodigal son, oftentimes we emphasize the end of the story. And what happens in the story is that a son goes and he demands his inheritance from his dad. In other words, he basically says to his dad, I'd be better if you were dead. And so I want all my stuff, all my money now. And the dad gives it to him. He does Romans 1 that we talked about when we were doing our, our worship series. When we talked about how God will give us over to our own desires and he lets us have what we want. And the father says, you want life apart from me? You can have life apart from me. I'm not going to force you to have a relationship with me. And so the son goes off and he wastes the money on riotous living, on women, and on partying. And he ends up at the lowest of the low in the slums with pigs. And he can't even eat their food. He's watching the pigs. That's his job. And his job says that he can't eat the food that the pigs are eating. And then we celebrate the end of the story because he goes back and the father, like our heavenly father, takes him back in his grace. You want a relationship with me? I'll take you back. It's never too late. You can always turn to me. Wonderful story. We skip the beginning though. And what the son had done at the beginning, and we'll put the verse up on the screen. In Luke chapter 15, he goes to his dad. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me. He commands his father. You give me my share of the estate. Basically smacks him in the face and says, I know better than you know. I want what I want, and I want it on my timing. And that's what we do to God when we're discontent. You haven't given me what I want, and I know what's best for me better than you know what's best for me, so then you need to give me. Fill in the blank with whatever the stuff is. Person, 
situation, circumstances, finances, a thing. You fill in the blank with whatever it is. That's what we do. And we're saying that we know, God's, we know timing better than God knows timing. That good timing would be if I got my desired outcome, if I got my result. And so then God's timing must be off. So we might mentally say that his timing is perfect, but practically do we believe that it's perfect is the real question. And the reality is in this passage, we're the children. He says here, so also when we were children, we were in slavery. Now, what do you mean we're in slavery? I identify with the idea, I know what it was like to be young. What do you mean slaves? Well, all the Galatians had not been labor slaves. He's talking about slavery, like all of us have been in slavery. We're meaning that we've all had a master before. And anytime your master is someone other than God, and you can't have two, anytime your master is someone other than God, you're in bondage, you're in slavery, whatever language you like best for that, you're not free. Whenever someone or something other than God is calling the shots in your life, driving the decisions, dictates what you think about, is the reason why you do what you do when you get up in the morning, what motivates you. It can be all kinds of things. The list is almost endless. Money, power, reputation, pleasure, material stuff, uh, other people's opinions, fear, guilt, sin, all kinds of stuff can be in that spot. And let me tell you something. We've all been there. I don't care if you were born into a Christian family and you were at church on day two of your existence because choir practice happened and your parents had to get you there. We've all been in bondage to other stuff before. We've all been in slavery. It says in this text that he's speaking to the Galatians, kind of a general audience, he says, when we were children, we were in slavery, and he says, under the basic principles of the world, second part of verse three. Some of your translations may say under the elemental principles of this world. Scholars debate about what this means. Does the Greek word that's translated here, basic in the NIV, or element in some other elemental, rudimentary, uh, in some other translations, does that mean the elements, like basic elements of the world? Earth, wind, fire, water, elements, creation. And maybe here it's referring to, like we talked about in our exchange series, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship created things rather than the creator of all things. Like, like Jason was talking about last week, we worship the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And so it's the stuff. It's all these things that we want, whether it's a, a house or a car or a job or whatever it is, you fill in the blank with created things, that we were under slavery to those things. Or what other scholars will say is that, that basic elements here, the basic principles, the elemental principles, like the ABCs of the law, like the Ten Commandments, like the Sinai Covenant, like the Mosaic Law that's there for the Jews, or for the pagan Galatians, it would be that you, kind of like all false religions, you have to be good enough for God to love you. You have to work hard enough. Your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. It's said in all kinds of different ways, but essentially this, that you do something to make God love you. And do you know what? Our city is in bondage to this beyond what you know. There's, there's a reason why some of you are here today. It's because you have to be somewhere because it's 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. It's just you've got to do it because then God will be happy with you in some way, right? And we get held in bondage to this. I read this week a story about John Wesley. As many of you have heard of John Wesley. He's got some great quotes. One of the founding guys of the movement called uh, the Methodist movement. But many people don't know his story. And he was actually a pastor, a missionary, before he ever became a Christian. He went to college in Oxford. So he's from a different part of the world, obviously. Actually did a mission trip one time to America. While he was in college, he started a group called the Holy Club. And the Holy Club's not your typical fraternity, if I need to unpack all of that. But uh, they would do stuff like uh, pray together, uh, study the Bible together, attend services together, fast with one another. They weren't Christians. He went on a mission trip to America, started to discover this. 
I was in Georgia trying to minister to Native Americans at the time. Came back, and in his journal, he writes about this, which I saw in the first service, just kind of thought of this. Apparently, when you die, it's okay to read someone's diary because <laughs> we published his journal after he died. And so there's some little excerpts. He said things like, I went to convert the Americans, and I myself was not converted. So he's going on mission trips. He's in bondage to religion. A couple years later, what happens is he goes to a service. God warms his heart, speaks to him. Such to stir in him what it is to really know Jesus Christ, not just to try and do stuff to make God happy with him. And he says this in his journal. He said, I had then, back when he was doing all that stuff, he said, I had then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. And that's the language of our text. He was in bondage to religion. He said, all of us, when we were children, in our immaturity, we were in slavery to the basic principles. They look different for each one of us. For some of us is materialism. For some of us is religion. For some of us it was guilt. For some of us it was fear, a person. Whatever it is, you put it on the throne of your life. You had a master, and it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't your maker. It wasn't your father. But then look at verse 4. But at just the right time, when the time had fully come, and the fullness of time, at the perfect time, God. But God, two key words. Those two words will change your life. But, and notice it doesn't say, but when you realized this, when you came to the realization that the God that was ruling your life would no longer satisfy you, you decided to look for something else. You figured all the philosophies and decided that God was the best option. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that you were down and out and you were so worn out that you decided because you were at the bottom that you would turn to God. Doesn't say that you cleaned up your act. Doesn't say that you decided to start attending a thing. It says, but God. God took the initiative. Now, from our perspective, sometimes we think that's what's happening, but God's the one that's stirring in our heart because in this transaction of salvation, the only thing we bring to the table is sin. That's all we've got. And so we come to God in our brokenness, and the only thing we offer is sin. And in the fullness of time, God made us aware of our sin at just the right time for each one of us. Each one of us have placed our faith in Jesus at the perfect time. But God... He did the work. He took the initiative on his timing, that perfect timing, the fullness of time. What exactly does that mean? Well, if you read commentaries about it, like I did this week, you'll find a bunch of stuff. You'll find people that will talk about how theologically this is just the right time for God to, in the next part of the verse, send his son, born of a woman, into human history. Because at this time, people were theologically ripe to be excited about a Messiah, but to kill him when he doesn't become who they want him to be. And so you've got all these different people groups. The Pharisees, the Jews, they were excited because they wanted Rome to be overthrown and for Jews to be in charge. The Essenes, another people group, they were excited because they look at our, the society, the culture, and they were just appalled at all the moral decay and they wanted him to bring moral reformation and change all the sin that was happening. You look at the Zealots, it was a political group, and they just wanted Rome to not be the way of leading. So they wanted to revolt against Rome in that sense. Not so that Jews could be in charge, just so that Rome could be dethroned. So everybody had an agenda and everybody had an idea for who Jesus would be. But nobody used the scripture. They weren't talking about the Messiah that's promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We get the first glimpse of the seed. Or this promise that he will die on a cross as we see in Psalm 22. When he says in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or the suffering servant that's mentioned in the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. You don't see that. You don't see them looking for that. They're looking for a Jesus who will meet their needs. A Jesus who will fit their mold. And when he doesn't do that, they kill him. That makes it perfect. Because if they didn't kill him, we wouldn't be offered salvation. He wouldn't have died on a cross and atonement wouldn't be available for each one of us. 
And so it was God's perfect timing because at just that time, the people would be excited about a Messiah and murder him at the same time. So it was God's perfect timing theologically. Others, if you read about this, will say that it was God's perfect timing historically because historically the world was unlike it had ever been before. Uh, there was never before had the Mediterranean world been unified and because of Rome and their forced peace, Rome had forced peace upon the entire known world at that time. And they developed a road system so you could communicate in a speed unlike ever before. And so people that are historians will look back and say, this is the, the spread of Christianity happened because it happened at just this time because of the road system that was in place. And not only that, with Rome protecting the peace so that people weren't robbed as often and as frequently by criminals on the roads and all, and you could travel, and there was that kind of forced peace that was taking place. But the Greeks ruled the day intellectually, and so there was a language that was spoke amongst all the people. Never since the time of Babel had there been a time where there was a common language, and now they had a common Greek language, the Koine Greek, which the New Testament's written in. And so it made it easier for people to spread the gospel. Not only that, because of the exiles that took place in the Old Testament, there are now synagogues in place which were like evangelistic centers, if you look at it, where Paul would first go, where Jesus would first go when they would go to a town and teach because the Jews would go there and he'd preach first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles in the community. And so historically, the timing looks perfect. But the thing that I scratch my head at and look at this and I say, it's so easy to like project that stuff onto stuff that we know because hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You can look back and kind of make all the pieces fit together. But it says here that the plan was that he'd send a son born of a woman. What was it like for that woman? And woman, to even call her a woman is interesting. Some of you know the story. What was her name? Mary. Mary? How old was Mary? 14, 12, 14, 13, somewhere in that range. So she's a teenage girl. And oftentimes when we talk about Mary, don't we talk about her in a very pure way? Like, like she's pretty innocent. And it's like she doesn't do anything wrong ever in the story. So then I just kind of imagine she just kind of went with the story. May it be to me as, she has said, as you have said, she says in the story. And so we just kind of go with She never asks a question. I try to imagine if I were a teenage girl, found out I was pregnant. <laughs> which is not an easy imagination for me, and, and so you know. But really, if I just but I think about it, if my mind was in that situation, I would think to myself, I'm pregnant, I'm not even married. Could you have waited a couple months? Like, your timing's perfect, God? Could you just have waited a little while? Or you read in Matthew, or, you know, the, Joseph, he's going to lead this family, right? And guys, you ever had to take your family on a road trip? You, ever, you show up to the hotel, there's no room. Do you know that part of the story? Right, you show up and there's no room in the inn for the Son of God to be born. <laughs> you think there'd be room for that, right? And, and humanity and the existence that was happening. If God's timing was perfect, shouldn't there be a room, like one room, at least the last room? What do you think if you're Joseph in that story? Do you think to yourself, if we hadn't gotten caught in traffic back in Jerusalem, donkey crossing, you know, that happened, it would have been perfect timing, right? But it wasn't, and God was a little off in this one. That's how, and if I were in the story, I think that's how I would think. And you go from the manger to the cross. Think about the cross 30-some years later. And Mary's looking at her son who's exhausted, who's bleeding, who's being mocked. And do you think she thinks at that moment, God, your timing is so perfect. You see, when we're in the circumstance, a lot of times it's a lot harder. And we read stories like Abraham and Sarah and Hannah and trying to have children, and, and we know the end of the story. But what about when you can't have children and you want children really bad? Do you think to yourself, God's timing is perfect? If he wants it to happen, it'll happen in his timing. Do you think that? Some people might. Or do you question the circumstances? Do you struggle with discontentment? Do you wish that? And you fill in the blank with your circumstances and whatever they are. And ultimately what we end up doing is we end up saying, if I were just in control, I could do this better. This is how it would work out. And we play God. Now, we don't like to say that, 
Many of us are uncomfortable with even that language. But imagine for a moment that you got to. What if you could play God? What if you were in his role? What would you do differently? And also, by the way, you're responsible for holding the universe in place and telling the waves to stop at a certain distance and feeding all the wild animals that are out there and the hairs on everybody's head. You've got to keep track of all that stuff, but then you're presented with this dilemma. You're holy, righteous, and just, and you've got to reconcile the ones that you love, sinners, to yourself. So you're holy, you can't have sin in your presence, and there are sinners that you love dearly. How do you, and you don't know this story, you don't know the Bible and what he comes up with, what would you come up with to make that happen? You can't, you can't just forget it because you wouldn't be just. Somebody's got to pay for this sin. You can't just ignore it because you're holy, but you're also loving and merciful and gracious. And so would you even think for a second? Would you even fathom? Would you, the concept even be close to your imagination to send your own son to die so that they could become the righteousness of your son and that your son would take upon their sin, that there'd be that transaction that would take place? Would you even fathom that? No way. But yet we think when we talk to God, if, you just, if I could just have my thing, little gadgets, little toys, like our stuff is so small and so little. The story that Pastor Jason was preaching last week, the bread, they're coming to Jesus. He says, I'm the bread of life, and they just want a meal. And when he was preaching that message, I love that message last week. It was John 6, 25 through 32. Is that right? Somewhere in there? Go listen to it online. But while he was up here preaching, I remember thinking to myself, my little stuff that I bring to God, and if I were, and obviously I'm sinful and I couldn't fathom Jesus' mind and, and what it was like, but what would I think if I were in his situation and these people that I created that have been on earth for, I'm eternal, by the way, and the people on earth are asking me these questions as if I have to answer their questions for them to be okay with me. And here I am, I'm 36, and I've got questions for God, as if he's looking at me going, I never thought of that. Great question, Scott. And so these people are coming to Jesus and they're asking, he's saying, I'm the bread of life. Satisfaction's only found in me. And they're going, can I have a sandwich? Do you think Jesus ever thought to himself, who are you? Like, really, even asking me these questions? Do you know what he says in the scripture through his prophet Isaiah? He says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are different than yours. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Look how different they are. As the heavens are higher than the earth, Okay, so it's not like we're real close here. As the heavens are far from the earth, so are my ways higher than your thoughts, than, than your ways. And it's not like if you just had one more answer, then you'd get it. Okay, they're not even close. We don't even know what we don't know. Like if we asked the, our why questions or our discontentment, if he told us the answer, it'd probably blow up our heads. Okay, we don't even get this. He's so different than us. But he's the father, we're the children, and his timing is the perfect timing. He says it like this in Job. You think he would never answer that way or never have those thoughts. Job goes through some incredibly difficult stuff. Worse than anybody I've ever met. And I've heard some crazy stories. But Job, then, he, at the beginning he says, you know, blessed be the, you know, God, if he gives and takes away, naked I came in, naked I go, all this stuff. But eventually there's some questions that start to creep in. And look at what God says. This is God speaking to Job. In Job chapter 38 and verse 1, he says this. The Lord answered Job out of the storm, the difficult stuff he's going through, and said this. Who is this that darkens my counsel? With words without knowledge. You don't even know what you're asking. Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. 
and he proceeds to ask a bunch of questions that there's no possible way Job has a clue about. Look at what he says. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? As if he's building it like a builder, right? Look at this. Surely you know, sarcasm, by the way, if you don't think God's sarcastic, who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? And I love this part. While the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Because you remember that part, right? That's kind of happening off in the distance while I was creating the world. And then he goes on. Who shut the sea behind the doors and burst, when it burst forth from the womb when he created the water? Is what he's saying. When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it, set its doors and bars in place, when I said this far you can come and no farther, here's where you can stop, he tells the water. Where were you, Job? He goes on and he asks some questions like, you know where the snow is stored, correct? Sarcasm. You know where I keep the lightning bolts before I command them to go. You know the names of all the stars. Do you know, you saw the billy goat giving birth on the side of a mountain, correct? You took Leviathan home as a pet. You can do that, correct? In other words, my ways and yours. And I'm doing something you don't get and you're not going to know. We get the blessing of reading Job's story that is one of the places, one of the few, few places we ever get to see behind the scenes. It says, you're not going to... Will you trust the one who does? Will you trust the one who knows more than you know? Will you trust your father that he actually has perfect timing? He has a perfect plan? And here's the deal. When you read the New Testament, he tells us this revelation. He's orchestrating in his perfect wisdom and his eternality and his omnipresence and his perfect knowledge. He takes all of that and he works for your good. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, he says this, For we know that all things work together for good. God works them together for good for those who love him who've been called according to his purposes. He's got a plan and a purpose and that's perfect too. And all of it works together according to his perfect timing. So your discontentment means you're off in your timing. It means you're not trusting the one who has all that stuff worked out, even the very hairs on your head. And if his timing is perfect, it means this for all of us, that his plan can be trusted. If his timing's perfect, then his plan, and it's different for each one of us. We're looking at the macro plan when we talk about the plan of salvation, the plan of God, the Christmas story, but even in the micro plans, what he wants you to do today, who he wants you to talk to, how he wants you to come into God, what he wants to interact with over with your relatives when you meet this Christmas, the things that he wants you to experience the things he wants you to know, things he doesn't want you to know, all of that stuff, it can be trusted. And here he reveals the plan in this passage of Scripture. Let's break it down a little bit, phrase by phrase. I'll read the verses, then we'll go back over them. But when the time had fully come, perfect timing, we've talked about that, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And let's break this down, phrase by phrase. But, verse 4, God's doing something here. There's a contrast that's taking place. When the fullness of time had come, when the time had fully come, perfect timing. God sent his son, perfect plan. Next phrase, born of a woman, perfect circumstance. Born under law, perfect circumstance. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those under the law, perfect purpose. And then look at this that we might receive the full rights of sons, that we might be adopted into his family as adult children, giving the full inheritance at that access point. And not only that, that he'd give, you talk about love and give to give gifts. God gives his spirit. He puts his DNA in his children. Who would have thought of that? So perfect results. 
Perfect timing, perfect plan, perfect circumstances, perfect purpose, perfect results. It's all in His hands. He's in control, and He can be trusted. And we can talk about each element of this, but because we get really messed up under circumstances, look at the circumstances He gives. Born of a woman. I would have never thought of that. Born under the law. Really? Because Martin Luther tells us that the law, the purpose of it is to drive us to the point where we realize we could never meet it and we have a need that we can never fix. That's what religion does to us. You spend your time in bondage to religion long enough, you'll end up figuring that out. Hopefully it's not too late. Is that you end up going to the place where you go, I can never be perfect. I can never do enough. I can never keep all of it. And then you get into the mental stuff counts too. Are you kidding me? And says, so you put Jesus born under the law, born of a woman, you'd send divine God into humanity to be human. I'd never think of that. I can't even grasp it now. But why? Because it's the perfect circumstance. And he tells us that in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Because he's human, he's able to understand us. Not just from the he created us, he knows how all this stuff works, but from an experiential standpoint. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way as we're tempted. To know all the things that we know. All the stressors of life, all the fatigue of life, all the physical stuff that happens, all the emotional stuff that happens, all the spiritual stuff that happens, all those things. He knows it from our perspective. And then he can sympathize with us, Hebrews 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 15 tells us. And then it says, yet he was without sin, under the law. He was under the law. He was subject to the law, just like everyone else in humanity has been subject to these basic principles of the law. But he never sinned. And that's where his deity is so important. His humanity is great because now he knows us. Now he can relate with us. Now when we go to him in our struggles, he understands. But he has to remain fully God too. Because otherwise, when he dies, he can't die for us. If he's just human, when he dies, he lived a perfect life. He has one perfect life to give then. So he can die for one other person. But because he's God, when he dies, he can die for the entire world. Perfect circumstances. And then we look at ours. I think, but yeah, but not this. And not this situation. And certainly, how could this? And why didn't he stop? And how come? And why about, what about? And why did he allow? Why did he cause? Why didn't he? And we know better, right? We think we know what's going on with all this stuff. Because of our why questions. Our why questions, some of that's a reflection on the fact that we don't trust his timing. That we don't acknowledge his ways are different than our ways. We act like if his goodness just measured up to mine, then I could believe in him. And we're so small. My wife and I have some friends that live in Dallas, and they've got two daughters, and I shared a little bit of their story about a year ago. Uh, a year ago, one of their daughters, a uh, beautiful young girl in her 20s, uh, blogger for model stuff, for fashion stuff, was in a terrible accident. She had gone out with some friends. Uh, they owned a private plane, and they were flying around Dallas, and they were looking at Christmas lights, and so it was almost a year ago now. And when they landed the plane, she got out. She accidentally walked into the propeller of the plane, crushed her skull, cut her hand off. She's now lost her eye and uh, has a prosthetic hand. It's uh, been a terrible circumstance, but they didn't think she was going to live. And then they didn't know if she would be able to talk in sentences. They didn't know if she'd have a personality. And God's been restoring in a short amount of time all that stuff. Well, she's been on the news lately because of the terrible accident and the miraculous recovery. They've had her on the Today Show. I think she was on the Today Show this week. Um, she was on Dateline a few weeks ago. And Shannon was watching it. She had recorded it. And I walked in and I just caught the tail end. At the end of her interview... The reporter asked her, do you ever ask the question, why? And I expect her to say, yeah, I mean, because everybody asks why questions. She said, no. She said something on the lines of, there's always a reason. There's a reason. 
She just knows that she's not going to know what it is. And so instead, what she does is she trusts the one who does. She knows that passage of Scripture that oftentimes we make so trite. Let me read it again. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, so that's even in your things, that's even in the bad things, that God is so good that he works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, there's a bigger story that's taking place. And it's so far beyond our grasp, there's no way we could understand all the stuff that's taking place. And he's so good that he can even take the stuff that's junk, like that happens because of the sinful world, that's not in line with what his character is, of his graciousness and his love and his mercy, and he can redeem those things for good. But the question for us is, do we trust him? Now, his timing is perfect. If his timing is perfect, you know what? Then his plan can be trusted. Now, I don't know what his plan is for you this Christmas, but I do know he has a plan for you this Christmas. I don't know what his plan is for your family. I know he has a plan for your family. I don't know what his plan is in your finances and your circumstances and the stuff that you struggle with discontentment with. I don't know what his plan is with you, with what you have on your, the throne of your life. I don't know what it is that you might be in bondage to. I don't know all that stuff. He does, and I know he has a plan in all of it. And the question for all of us is, will you trust him? Not is it good timing, is it bad timing, is it not will it work out the way that I want it to, or will it work out the opposite? But regardless of how it works out, I trust the one who's in control of it all. That's the question. So will you trust him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful we can call you Father, that we can call you, and even this text tells us we can call you our Father, Abba, that we can come to you in intimacy and we can be intimate with you. You are so different than us, but want to know us. Father, thank you for that. Thank you that your plan, being something so different than anything any of us would ever come up with, is the perfect plan, the plan that we celebrate this Christmas that you sent your son Jesus so you could know us as the text goes on to say, to redeem us, to buy us, to buy us out of our slavery so that we could then be your children and be in your family and be given your spirit. Father, I pray if there are any here today that need to know your son Jesus as Savior, that today would be the day that they would recognize your plan for them, your plan to save them, that you desire, you're not willing that any would perish, that you want everyone to come to the place of repentance where they turn from their way of life and turn to you. Father, I pray that that would happen today in their lives. And Father, I pray for those of us who know you as Savior, that we would trust you as Father, that we would trust you as the one who actually knows more about this situation than we do, who cares about us actually more than we do, who cares about our kids more than we do, who cares about our hairs on our head more than we do, who cares about our lives more than we even care about ourselves, Father. I just pray that we would grasp your love for us and that you give us faith, that you'd give us the ability, because we don't bring anything to the table, that you'd even give us the ability to trust you. In Jesus' name I pray.